Hello and welcome. I am Dr. Lara May, a clinical pharmacist specializing in functional medicine, as well as a certified yoga teacher and Reiki master. I run a truly integrative health coaching practice, encompassing functional medicine lab testing, yoga and meditation, and a sprinkling of Reiki energy medicine. Join me here on Light Body Radio to break through your health plateau and come into alignment with your natural vitality. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Light Body Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Lara May. And today we're going to talk about something kind of difficult, actually really difficult and really hard. I really wanted to talk about addiction. And um, with the holidays coming, I know, I think probably all of us that um, are listening know someone that has struggled with addiction. Maybe we ourselves have been that person or someone struggling with addiction, whether it's alcohol, drugs, sex, shopping, social media, digital, something, video games, um, really any of those things can um, spiral into an addictive pattern if we let them, if we... um, lose control. So I just kind of want to, um, I guess my intention for this is to understand better addiction and to um, maybe just get us thinking about our own lives, our own behaviors, and um, maybe those loved ones around us too. With the holidays, we're going to be around family more, friends more, more parties, and maybe some of the people we know are um, sober and will be triggered and will need our support and our help. Or maybe, you know, we have people that we love that are teetering and this holiday season will send them over the edge, unfortunately. So I think it's good to be aware, like I said, both again for ourselves and for um, those around us that we love and care about. So addiction involves craving for something intensely, loss of control over it, over its use, and continuing involvement with it despite adverse consequences. Addiction changes the brain, first by subverting the way it registers pleasure, and then by corrupting other normal drives, such as learning and motivation. And although breaking an addiction is tough, it definitely can be done. So let's start with what causes addiction. The word addiction is derived from the Latin term enslaved by or bound to. And anyone who has struggled to overcome an addiction can definitely relate to these words. Addiction exerts a long and powerful influence on the brain that manifests in three distinct ways. The first is craving for the object of addiction. The second is loss of control. And the third is continuing involvement with despite adverse consequences. And for many years, experts believed that only alcohol and powerful drugs could cause addiction. But now we know better. Uh, neuroimaging technologies and more recent research have definitely shown us that even um, pleasurable activities such as gambling, shopping, and sex can also co-opt the brain in the form of addiction. 
So nobody starts out intending to develop an addiction, but many people get caught up in its snare. And um, just some of the latest statistics, nearly 23 million Americans, that's almost one in 10, are addicted to alcohol or other drugs. In the 1930s, when researchers first began to investigate what caused addictive behavior, they believed that people who developed addictions were somehow morally flawed or lacking in willpower. And now we know that that's just not the case. And even when we're talking about food addiction, willpower is only one element. Today, we recognize addiction as more of a chronic disease that changes both the brain structure and its function. Just as cardiovascular disease damages the heart and diabetes impairs the pancreas, addiction hijacks the brain. And this happens as the brain goes through a series of changes, beginning with recognition of pleasure and ending with a drive towards compulsive behavior. The brain registers all pleasures in the same way, whether they originate with a psychoactive drug, a monetary reward, a sexual encounter, or a satisfying meal. In the brain, pleasure has a distinct signature, the release of the neurotransmitter dopamine. Dopamine release in one area of the brain is so consistently tied with pleasure that neuroscientists refer to the region as the, the brain's pleasure center. All drugs of abuse from nicotine to heroin cause a particularly powerful surge of dopamine in this pleasure center. The likelihood that the use of a drug or participation in a rewarding activity will lead to a, an addiction is directly linked to the speed with which it promotes dopamine release, the intensity of that release, and the reliability of that release. Even taking the same drug through different methods of administration can influence how likely it is to lead to addiction. Smoking a drug or injecting it intravenously as opposed to swallowing as a pill, for example, generally produces a faster, stronger dopamine signal and is more likely to lead to drug misuse. Addictive drugs provide a shortcut to the brain's reward system by flooding this area with dopamine. A different area, called the hippocampus, lays down memories of this rapid sense of satisfaction, and the amygdala creates a conditioned response to this stimuli. Scientists once believed that the experience of pleasure alone was enough to prompt people to continue seeking an addictive substance or activity. But more recent research suggests that the situation is a little bit more complicated. Dopamine not only contributes to the experience of pleasure, but also plays a role in learning and memory. Two key elements in the transition from liking something to becoming addicted to it. According to the current theory about addiction, dopamine interacts with another neurotransmitter, glutamate, to take over the brain's system of reward-related learning. This system has an important role in sustaining life because it links activities needed for human survival with pleasure and reward. The reward circuit in the brain includes areas involved with motivation and memory as well as pleasure. Addictive substances and behaviors stimulate this same circuit and then overload it. Repeated exposure to an addictive substance or behavior causes nerve cells in the nucleus accumbens and the prefrontal cortex 
to communicate in a way that couples liking something with wanting it, in turn driving us to go after it. This process motivates us to take action to seek out the source of that pleasure. Over time, the brain adapts in a way that actually makes the sought-after substance or activity less pleasurable. So in nature, rewards usually come only with time and effort. Addictive drugs and behaviors provide a shortcut, flooding the brain with dopamine and the other neurotransmitters. Our brains do not have an easy way to withstand the onslaught. Addictive drugs, for example, can release two to 10 times the amount of dopamine that natural rewards do, and they do it more quickly and more reliably. In a person who becomes addicted, brain receptors become overwhelmed. The brain responds by producing less dopamine or eliminating dopamine receptors altogether, an adaptation similar to turning the volume down on a loudspeaker when noise becomes too loud. As a result of these adaptations, dopamine has less impact on the brain's reward center. People who develop an addiction typically find that in time, the desired substance no longer gives them as much pleasure, and they have to take more of it to obtain the same dopamine high because their brains have adapted. This effect we also know as tolerance. So at what point does compulsion take over? It's at this point. <laughs> at tolerance, compulsion takes over. The pleasure associated with an addictive drug or behavior subsides, and yet the memory of the desired effect and the need to recreate it, the wanting persists. It's as though the normal machinery of no motivation is no longer functioning. The learning process mentioned earlier also comes into play. The hippocampus and the amygdala store information about environmental cues associated with the desired substance so that it can be located again. These memories help create a conditioned response, which is an intense craving in this case, whenever the person encounters those environmental cues. Cravings contribute not only to addiction, but to relapse after a hard-won sobriety. A person addicted to heroin may be in danger of relapse when he or she sees a hypodermic eagle, while another person might start to drink again after seeing a bottle of whiskey or maybe being exposed to their triggering family members. Conditioned learning helps explain why people who develop an addiction risk relapse even after years of abstinence. So is there hope? Yes, of course. I'm sure you know many people, I do too, that have successful relationships with sobriety and their recovery. But it can be a long road. And like I just uh, mentioned, there can be relapses over many years. And this is because addiction is learned and stored in the brain as memory. So recovery can be slow and even hesitant when it influences uh, when the influence of those memories uh, diminishes or until the influences of those memories diminish. About 40 to 60% of people with a drug addiction or alcohol addiction experience at least one relapse after the initial step to recovery. And while this may seem discouraging on the surface, the relapse rate is similar to that in other chronic diseases such as high blood pressure, diabetes, 
um, asthma, where 50 to 70% of the people each year experience a recurrence of symptoms. So this also uh, parallels back to what I said earlier about it being approached now more as a chronic disease instead of um, just a lapse in willpower. And there are more and more treatments that exist today. There are more and more support mechanisms. So these can be a combination of self-help strategies, psychotherapy, rehab, and for some types of addictions, there are definitely medications available to help you. So I want to take you uh, through some possible and hopefully supportive tools and steps that I have um, amassed to help either you yourself that are listening or like I said earlier, if you have a friend or family member that um, you think would be open and willing. And that brings me to the next part is, is this person or even are you, are you yourself ready to change? If you have an addiction and you'd like to change your behavior, consider all the costs and benefits of the choices you could make. Don't think only about the negative aspects of your addiction. Think too about the benefits that it offers. And this might seem a little counterintuitive, but one important step to recovery involves understanding what you get from your substance or activity of choice and how you might achieve the same benefit through less harmful means. So experts recommend doing sort of a, um, you know, they'll call it their cost benefit analysis, but really just make a list pros on one side, cons on the other. And so um, this can be again, anything, it can be gambling, it can be a substance, it can be any type of behavior. Maybe it's a, you know, something as what we might think of relative to drug addiction, a phone addiction might be fairly benign, but if this phone addiction is affecting your relationships and affecting how you function in life, then maybe it's not so benign. So let's just take, um, since I'm on the subject, the phone or a digital addiction as an example. So um, you would have your piece of paper, your pen or your pencil, and at the top right, is it worth the cost? And then on the left, write your benefits of not being on your phone 24-7. And then, what did I say? On the left, we'll pick a side, whatever, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and then on the opposite side of whatever you picked, write the benefits of being on your phone 24-7. And then once you have all those listed out, then below that, write the costs of not being on your phone 24-7. And then on the opposite side, write the costs of being absorbed in your phone constantly. So then comes the what, when, why, and how. And if you decide to make a change, you'll have to sort out exactly what, when, and how you want to change. And that will depend on a lot on your view of the problem. Those who are most invested and motivated to change will have the best chances of success. That seems to go without saying, right? Assuming you want to make a change, the next step is to choose your goals. So ask yourself, when do I want to make this change? Now, a lot of people, especially with drugs and alcohol, will have a very defined bottom 
where they have they have reached the ultimate low according to whatever that is for them and that will instigate this decision of I am ready to change I am changing right now and that's awesome but um, when I work with patients with smoking cessation or some of these other um, less severe habits we'll say what we do is we set a date of when we want to make the change and then ask yourself do you want to stop altogether or do you just simply want to cut down Now, again, this all depends on what kind of behavior you're looking at changing. Is it drugs, alcohol, cigarettes? Then ideally, you probably want to cut cut it out and stop it altogether. But if it's maybe, um, you know, your phone, which now has become a necessity, it's a part of our daily functioning in life, there's a line of a healthy relationship with the amount of time you're on your phone versus the amount of time you spend on social media or gaming or, you know, whatever it might be. So you can see how you can apply this to any sort of addictive behavior, not just what we in the society term the quote, really bad ones. So if you decide that you want to um, cut down, determine the level to which you want to limit your use or participation and be specific. And I've gone over the SMART um, approach to setting goals and SMART is an acronym for Specific, Measurable, Achievable, Realistic, and Time-Based. And I can link back to that episode if you want to review the ins and out of setting SMART goals. But again, be specific about what your goal is. Maybe, for example, I will stop drinking any alcohol between the hours of 1 a.m. and 10 a.m. Or whatever your, you know, I will stay, I will, you know, put my phone down at 8 p.m. and not pick it back up until 10 a.m. the next day. And then measurable meaning that your success should be easy to quantify, to keep track of. And this is to help you measure whether you have been successful or not. Achievable, meaning your goal should be something you are physically capable of doing and something that would be safe for you to do. If you're a chronic drinker around the clock, the sample goal might not be safe without the help of a doctor. Um, I don't know if many of you are aware, but opiate withdrawal will not kill you. You might want to die because it sucks so much, but it won't kill you. But alcohol withdrawal, if you've been a chronic drinker for a long time, then it can kill you. You can have seizures and you can die. So it's important to know and to seek medical advice and professional help, especially if you are seeking help with drug or alcohol or substance abuse. Because Even though you might be thinking you're doing something good, it's possible that you could be putting yourself at even greater risk by the way you go about it. So that's important. I really want to make sure everyone hears that. If you're seeking help with drug or alcohol addiction, seek professional medical help, both from a physician and also a psychotherapist, because both of these are part of successful recovery. And then the next... um, R of the SMART is realistic, meaning it's something that you believe you can do, and it's time-based, meaning that you should set a date and a time when you start, and then set intermediate um, measuring 
times. So when are you going to examine your progress? And set those at regular intervals. So, you know, it's not to say, you don't necessarily say I have to have completed it by a certain time, but you just want to make sure you're circling back and you're examining where you stand with these uh, goals. So, so far we've talked about the science, we've talked about setting SMART goals. So now we know that addiction literally changes how our brain works and that it is something that's more of a chronic disease. And, um, but now I really want to talk about um, more of the intangibles. And these are more of the um, behavioral things, the supportive things, the changing of the mindset and, um, and how we are successful in our recovery. So the first thing that I want you all to know, whether it's you on this path or you're being a supportive loved one, is that it takes courage to be on a healing path. And this can be really scary and sometimes just downright exhausting, whether it's you being the support person or you're the person going through this dark night of the soul addiction. And, you know, it can it's a lot easier and can feel a lot safer to totally check out and totally fall into this addictive pattern rather than um, being strong and looking at your triggers and looking at your behavior and looking at how your behavior is, you know, affecting those around you and your relationships and your job and all these things. So, one of the first things that I really want to talk and to instill is that if you are putting anything before your recovery, you will lose it. And this lesson applies really to any kind of healing. So instead of just checking out, really step onto your healing path and trust in your healing path. And trust that if you give it the attention it deserves, you will, you will come out on the other side. You will, you know, be the light at the end of the tunnel. So don't rush your recovery. Don't avoid your recovery. Make a commitment and show up for it. You, you ultimately are doing this for you. And if you're not the person going through this, if you're the, the recovery person, then be compassionate, be patient with them, be there for them so that they know that they have the support and the love that they need to get through this. So again, know that what you are doing is courageous and it might not be easy, but you can do this if you are committed to yourself, your recovery, and um, your love for yourself and those around you. So the next part takes me to treat yourself with compassion. And wherever you are, show up with compassion. Don't judge yourself. That's not productive. You can't change what's happened in the past, but you can change your behavior from now and into the future. So, you know, when something comes up that we need to heal, it can be terrifying. It can be scary and debilitating. 
and I definitely can resonate with you. I'm right there with you. I've been through these dark nights of the soul myself and, you know, you just don't want to deal with it. Sometimes you find yourself like literally paralyzed in bed, not able to get out of bed. And, you know, especially if you've been on a journey where you've been healing a lot and things just keep coming up and coming up and you're like, damn it, you know, when am I ever going to get past this? Am I ever going to see the other side of this dark tunnel? And the answer is yes. But you have to start with, again, treating yourself with compassion. And then comes the step of being willing to heal. You have to want this for yourself. We all have our own bottoms. And one of the things that I've come across in my research about recovery and my exposure to different uh, journeys through recovery is that you cannot deprive someone of their bottom. So, you know, let's say that you have a friend or family member and you can just see them spiraling. You, but they don't want it they're not ready. They're not there yet, unfortunately. And as much as it pains you to see them going through this, there's really nothing you can do for them except being loving and supportive until they've hit their bottom and they're ready to change. So you have the person going through the recovery has to want it for themselves. They have to have hit their own bottom and made the choice to start making changes. But all it takes is the slightest willingness and the slightest willingness will start opening doors. That slightest willingness will enable them to pick up the phone, to go to a meeting, to go to a therapy session. It really is such a small, tiny step that can be so powerful to freedom from the shackles of addiction. So being willing to heal will set you on the healing path and keep you on it. And it will allow whatever you need to come through to come through. And the willingness, again, is just so crucial because when you become willing and you choose to clean up your life, whether, again, whether it's a substance or something digital or maybe something a little less tangible, you open an invisible door to all the resources that you need that will come into your life your willingness opens that door. And if you are here today listening to this episode, then, you know, that to me is sort of like a spiritual synchronicity. It is a message saying that you are on the right path and that if you just continue to strengthen this willingness day by day, then things will fall into place. Things will open up. Things do get easier day by day. So the next aspect after you are willing and you want it and you're being compassionate and non-judgmental with yourself is to surrender. Surrender to a higher power. And I know a lot of people resist this and there was a time in my life where I would have resisted anything or anyone that said, talked about God or spirit or higher power. Um, But really having a daily meditation practice or a daily prayer practice, this is really the next step in trusting in the healing path. It is to surrender your ego, surrender your human will to divine will. 
So just get into a daily practice, a daily practice of surrendering, surrender your plans, surrender your patterns, turn it all over to a power that is greater than you. And that's the only place really that you need to start is just, you know, recognizing that there is something greater than us out there that we can surrender to. Maybe you say something like, I am now willing to heal. Please show me where to go and what to do. I am ready to receive guidance. I am ready to change my patterns and I am ready to heal. I am ready and I am willing. And in just a little simple prayer like that, you are surrendering your fears, you're surrendering your blocks, and everything that is standing in your way to true healing. And praying is a powerful way of getting in communication with guidance that is always supporting you. And I'm sure if you've listened to any of my past episodes, you know that I believe in angels and our guides, our spirit team, and they're always there, but we do have to ask for them to help. We do have to call on them. And praying or meditating is part of that. And some people say praying is the asking and meditating is the listening. But I think you can combine them too. So um, it's really the most important conversation that you're going to have every day is that turning inward. Because addiction stems from that searching outside of ourselves for really what we already have within, we've just forgotten or we've just been, you know, um, convinced out of it. But we can look far and wide for happiness. And as long as we continue to look outside rather than in, then we'll always be questioning, we'll always feel empty, we'll always fall short. So the key to recovery from addiction is to establish this deep inner relationship with ourselves, with our soul, with our higher self, with our spirit team, with this intuition, with this connection to the universe. And it doesn't matter what you call it. You can call it spirit. You can call it guide. You can call it source. Um, All that matters is that you choose to turn inward, to surrender, to ask for help. And again, through prayer meditation, and it doesn't take long, just, you know, five minutes every day. For me, the most magical time is right when I wake up and right before I go to bed. Those are the two times usually during my day, unless it's just crazy and I need to recenter. Then sometimes I meditate in the middle of the day too. But through prayer, we ask for guidance and through meditation, we can hear it. And redirecting our search for peace from the outside to the inside is a surefire way to make sure that we are staying on our path to recovery, to healing. So again, like I said, if this whole concept of prayer is like really, you know, freaking you out or you're just like, oh, I don't like this. This doesn't feel good. Don't sweat it. You don't have to, you know, do what feels good to you. Do what resonates with you. Find something that you feel in alignment with. So again, it could be as simple as intention setting in your journal, or maybe it's um, doing a quick appreciation or gratitude journaling practice. Whatever it is, is just the, it's more of the act of surrendering your own ideas and all that crap that runs around in our head and really like getting quiet and welcoming the wisdom from within to come out. 
The next step is to receive the support that comes your way. So once you have opened yourself up, you've been willing, you've asked for help, you've asked for guidance, maybe you've been praying or meditating on a regular basis, you'll start to see things and feel things fall into place. And you'll start to experience these synchronicities of things just lining up and working out in a much easier and more of a flowing way. And this is the universe sending you the support that you've been asking for. But it's important that you open yourself up to receive. So trusting in this healing path is to also trust and know that support is coming your way. And all you have to do is passively open up to receive this support because it will. And when you open up to healing, what you need will be given to you, but you have to be open to receiving it. And you have to maybe even have a meditation where you say, bring it on, I am ready. I am ready to receive. Another aspect of this journey can totally be understanding your triggers. And, you know, this can come into play in so many different aspects. It can even be, you know, um, in relationship aspects, you know, but again, like, especially with family members, the people that we're closest to that know us best, man, they really know how to get in there and push those buttons, don't they? And again, with the holidays coming, we're probably going to be around those people um, that we love for better or for worse. And so understanding your triggers, become conscious of what sets you off. Maybe there are some childhood wounds that you're still carrying around with you. So, um, you know, and I, when, let's say like you don't live in the same town that your family is, but you go home for a holiday. And it just seems like sometimes you're just thrown back into this role of, you know, whichever sibling you were, you know, whether you're the oldest or the youngest, or maybe you're stuck in that path of the family always like perpetually sees you as like this, like 17 year old kid always in trouble or, you know, whatever it is. Um, but just being able to witness them and see them again, this time through a non-judgmental and compassionate filter, that can be so life-changing because once you recognize it, then you're able to choose a different behavioral response. You don't have to, let's say, like lash out or get defensive or drink to, you know, make these feelings go away or get high or whatever it is. You can say, I recognize this. I am not this person anymore. And just by you changing your behavior and not responding and not retaliating or doing what you normally would, then that also will show whoever this is in this relationship dynamic, whether it's a family or sibling or parent or, you know, um, significant other, that you have changed and you are a different person and that you're not triggered by the same thing anymore. So the another aspect of this that can be really helpful, especially during really trying times, is finding that support, finding that um, friend, that loved one, someone that has been through a similar experience and that can totally relate. And um, Gabrielle Bernstein calls these spiritual running buddies. So it can help if it's someone also that has a similar spiritual practice as you do. Um, But 
really it's all about you when you make these shifts in your life, your energy changes and you will attract new people. And so your family or your friends might notice, hey, you're, you know, you seem different since you put down that drink or, you know, like you're not getting high on a regular basis anymore or whatever it is. And that's okay. You're not better than anyone. You've just chosen to wake up. And so you'll notice that you're, you know, who you vibrate, what I call like you vibrate in people and you vibrate out people. And that just means that wherever it is that you're hanging out on your energetic level, you're going to attract those same people. So if all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're like, damn, there's a lot of negative people around me. Maybe take that as a cue, especially if you don't want to continue to feel that way to maybe like look to see, you know, are you doing a lot of commiserating? Are you also sort of perpetuating some negative attitudes and negative behavior? And um, take that as an opportunity to examine and to maybe choose again. So I have definitely again, throughout um, my journey have um, found that when I have a spiritual running, running buddy, that it makes life a lot easier to deal with, um, for lack of a better way to put it. So because regardless of what's happening, either with work or with a significant other, um, I always have that person that I can say, hey, this happened, but oh, instead of, you know, reacting or retaliating, I did this instead, or man, this really triggered me today but at least I recognized it. And, you know, sometimes we still go down the rabbit hole and that's okay. But just having that person that really, you know, loves us unconditionally and doesn't judge us and also sees us with that same compassion, it helps us cultivate those things in ourselves. So again, find those friendships, find those people, find those spiritual running buddies. And, you know, at last but not least, take every day, one day at a time, take your recovery one day at a time. Because every day is different. And if we start looking out into, you know, the future, then all of a sudden, we can get really overwhelmed and really scared and really sometimes defeated. And, you know, maybe even think, well, what's the point of even getting started? But really, it is a one minute at a time thing. It's a one day at a time approach and no changes happen overnight with anything regardless of what you're doing. So again, don't rush it, don't avoid it and make the commitment to show up for yourself and be present in each moment because that's when we can really make those changes and we can make that progress is when we're present Even when we are catching ourselves in our old cycles, that is when the magic is happening because we can say, oh my God, uh, this usually would have thrown me down this spiral, but today I chose something different and I didn't do it. Or damn it, I was sucked into it once again. Why is it, you know, when I'm around this one person or around this group of people that I just get sucked into this pattern of behavior and at least you're aware of it so that next time, you're around that situation, you can hopefully be even more aware and choose again. So it's a really empowering process, uh, recovery and healing. And I don't know if people really talk about how disempowering 
Uh, I mean, we talk about the numbing that we do with our substances and our behaviors, but really all we're doing is disempowering ourselves. We're, you know, shutting things out, we're shutting ourselves down. But when we are involved in our healing path, then we are empowered, we are making deliberate and intentional choices. And we are at that precipice of where we can really create a life that we love and that we want to be involved with. So in the notes section for today's episode, I'm going to put some recovery resources on there too. So for any of you that are don't know where to turn or looking for something, um, there's some books and some organizations that I'm going to link to. And uh, you'll definitely find a link to one of Gabrielle Bernstein's blogs about her own recovery, because she put together this fabulous list of resources um, that you might find helpful. And there's a bunch of different ones. So depending on where you are and what you're looking for, I'm sure you'll find something that you resonate with. And as always, I hope to hear comments about your own experiences and your own journey if you're willing to bring those forward. Um, I hope that this is a safe, um, compassionate, non-judgmental space for you to um, be vulnerable and open And I would love to hear about your healing path and your healing journey. And I hope you all have a fabulous holiday season coming up. And if there's anything that you would like specific support with or specific episodes on, please let me know. As always, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Dr. Lara May. That's at D-R-L-A-R-A-M-A-Y. And definitely check out my website for upcoming workshops and events and specials that I'm running. And that's on my website, drlaramay.com. So I will catch you on the flip side. Namaste.